Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Interpipeline's first quarter in 2021 conference call and webcast. I would now like to turn the meeting over to Mr. Jeremy Roberge, Vice President, Finance and Investor Relations of Interpipeline. Please go ahead, Mr. Roberge. Thank you, Gabriel, and good morning, everyone. On the call with me today are Chris Bale, Interpipeline's President and Chief Executive Officer, Brent Hagee, Chief Financial Officer, Jeff Marchant, Senior Vice President, Transportation, and Corey Neufeld, Vice President, NGL. On today's call, Chris will discuss recent developments, including the business segment restructuring, HPC, and the ongoing strategic review process. Brent will discuss our Q1 2021 financial performance, and will provide a, a brief update on recent financing and risk management activities. We'd like to remind you that certain information on this conference call may contain forward-looking information that involves risks, uncertainties, and assumptions. Such information, although considered reasonable by Interpipeline at this time, may later prove incorrect and actual results may differ materially from those stated or implied by our comments today. Undue reliance should not be placed on such information. The discussion of the related risk factors, uncertainties, and assumptions is available in our MDNA, which you can find on our website or at CDAR.com. Please go ahead, Chris. Thanks, Jeremy, and good morning, everybody. To date, 2021 has certainly been an active year for Interpipeline. I am immensely proud of our recent achievements, including the successful completion of the business segment reorganization that was effective January 1st, as well as the announcement of strong commercial contracting support for the Heartland Petrochemical Complex. These accomplishments are compounded by the recent strength in commodity prices and has created positive momentum for Interpipeline as we continue to demonstrate our resiliency and focus on operational excellence and value creation. As a result of our business reorganization, Interpipe now reports its financial results under four new business segments, transportation, facilities infrastructure, marketing, and new ventures. This structure aligns with how Interpipeline manages, budgets, and commercially operates its businesses, as well as aligns our external reporting with our energy infrastructure peers. The transportation and facilities infrastructure segments are designed to provide additional transparency on our stable cost of service and fee-based adjusted EBITDA. While the creation of an integrated marketing segment centralizes our commodity-based adjusted EBITDA and enhances our ability to proactively manage our commodity risk and related hedging activities. Our remaining segment, New Ventures, includes HPC and focuses on the development of large-scale projects designed to create material new cash flow streams. We're confident that this structure will set Interpipe up for long-term success as we continue to grow the business. Moving to the Heartland Petrochemical Complex, on April 5, 2021, Interpipe announced that it had been awarded $408 million cash grant under the Alberta Petrochemical Incentive Program, or APIP. We're extremely pleased with this outcome, which clearly demonstrates a high level of government support for the project. In turn, Interpipe continues to support the Alberta economy. Since inception, more than 150 Alberta businesses have contributed to the construction of HPC. Over
with a four-year construction period, we estimate HPC will have created approximately 16,000 direct and indirect full-time jobs, generated 200 million of tax revenue for the provincial and municipal governments, and added approximately $3 billion directly into the Alberta economy. On April 22nd, we provided a fulsome commercial update on the project. I'm proud to reiterate the great progress we have made in securing high-quality, long-term, take-or-pay contracts for approximately 60% of HPC's production capacity. Seven arm's-length counterparties have executed agreements with a weighted average term of approximately nine years and include Canadian and multinational energy producers and North American polypropylene consumers. Under these contracts, we generate a stable return on capital plus fixed operating and variable fees with no exposure to commodity price fluctuations. I am pleased to confirm that the conditions associated with the one agreement referred to in the April 22nd news release have been satisfied. Ultimately, our objective is to secure a minimum of 70% of HPC's production capacity under this contracting framework, and advanced negotiations are proceeding with a number of additional counterparties. Should these negotiations be successfully concluded, we would be in a position to exceed our minimum contracting objective in advance of the facility becoming operational in early 2022. In addition to the commercial update, we highlighted our adjusted EBITDA estimate for 2023, the first full year of operations of $400 to $450 million. We expect approximately 70% of this range to be generated by a combination of stable take-or-pay adjusted EBITDA from currently executed contracts and, and a fixed cash grant received through APIP. We also expect approximately 85% of this take-or-pay cash flow and APIP grant will be from investment-grade counterparties or private firms with investment-grade owners. We have negotiated additional financial assurances for those entities that are not investment-grade, such as letters of credit, prepayment provisions, and other applicable credit enhancements. We believe the 2023 EBITDA range is quite achievable and underpinned by a set of prudent and conservative operating and commodity price assumptions. For example, we have assumed a North American posted polypropylene to Edmonton propane spread below the historical average and nearly half of the current spread. We have also assumed a sensible two-year production capacity ramp-up period coupled with higher-than-average operating cost estimate. Interpipe expects HPC will generate a 10-year average annual adjusted EBITDA of $450 to $500 million per year. On-site productivity remains strong and we continue to track towards the scheduled in-service date of early 2022. We continue to transition our efforts from heavy construction to operational commissioning activities. Construction of the Central Utilities Block, or CUB, provide power and steam to both the PDH and PP facilities is proceeding well. Mechanical completion is expected during the third quarter with full power to the grid in the fourth quarter. The CUB will be operated by Inner Pipeline but is owned by Fengate Capital. Currently on-site construction is approximately 90% complete for PDH, PP, and CUB. Inner Pipeline also recently completed a detailed review of its total capital cost for HPC as the propane dehydrogenation facility approaches mechanical completion this month. The estimated final cost of the complex is $4.2 billion, which is a slight increase over our previous estimate and includes additional expenses associated with keeping our workers safe while managing through the challenges associated with the COVID-19 pandemic. 
the majority of the additional capital is expected to be incurred in late 2021. Lastly, I'd like to highlight that we're building HPC with, a, with sustainability top of mind. Through the use of advanced technology and on-site hydrogen augmented power and utilities generation, the polypropylene produced at HBC is anticipated to have a GHG emissions footprint that is 65% lower than the global average. Based on third-party life cycle assessment, a full, at full operating capacity, converting 22,000 barrels per day of propane into 525 tons per year of polypropylene will reduce GHG emissions by approximately 45% and prevent 1 million tons of CO2 emissions from entering the atmosphere annually. This is equivalent to removing roughly 217,000 passenger vehicles from our roads each year, or all of the GHG emissions that we produce from our Canadian operations during 2019. Now I'd like to turn things over to Brent to discuss our financial performance. Please go ahead, Brent. Well, thank you, Chris, and good morning, everyone. Financial results under our new reporting framework are based on adjusted EBITDA. Also, certain GNA expenses previously classified as corporate GNA are now allocated to operating segments to improve financial transparency and also cost management. During the first quarter, Interpipeline generated a strong adjusted EBITDA of $278 million compared to $264 million during the same period in 2020. The increase was largely attributable to strong operational performance and higher realized commodity pricing partially offset by the sale of 15 European storage terminals in November of 2020. Funds from operations for the quarter was $239 million, or $0.56 cents per share, compared to $208 million, or $0.49 cents per share, during the same period in 2020, and was favorably impacted by the same factors as previously mentioned. On a segmented basis, the transportation business generated $211 million of adjusted EBITDA, during the quarter representing a 9% decrease from $233 million for the same quarter of 2020 that was largely due to the European storage sale. Interpipeline remains in a process to finalize the Milk River asset swap with Plains, Midstream Canada ULC. The Milk River pipeline system and associated infrastructure will become part of the transportation segment and is expected to generate approximately $25 million of annual EBITDA. The transaction should conclude in the first half of 2021. The facilities infrastructure segment generated adjusted EBITDA of $33 million during the first quarter, a decline of 24% compared to $44 million reported in the same quarter of last year. The decrease is primarily due to lower infrastructure plant volume as well as higher ACO natural gas and power prices. I am pleased to announce that subsequent to the quarter, Interpipeline entered into a new fee-based arrangement with NOVA for ethane sales at the Cochrane Extraction Plant. Effective January 1, 2025, NOVA will purchase the majority of Cochrane's annual ethane production under this agreement. The marketing segment's first quarter 2021 adjusted EBITDA was $74 million compared to $3 million in the same quarter of 2020. The significant increase relates to higher realized pricing, particularly for NGLs and crude oil. Results were impacted by higher natural gas shrinkage and butane costs, as well as a $16.5 million realized loss on risk management activities, primarily related to PGP and propane sales at ROF and Propane Plus products at Cochrane. Our last segment, New Ventures, contains business and operational readiness costs 
directly related to the Hartman-Petrochemical complex and resulted in negative 10 million of adjusted EBITDA as the facility is not yet in service. So now I would like to turn things over to Jeremy. So Jeremy, please go ahead. Great, thank you, Brent. Uh, turning to the balance sheet, Interpipeline remains committed to maintaining financial flexibility and has continued to build off the financing activity completed last year. During the quarter, we've repaid $325 million of medium-term notes that matured in February with funds available on a revolving credit facility. In addition, we reduced the pricing margin and extended the maturity on our $1 billion unsecured revolving credit facility to December 2022. We also reduced borrowing costs associated with our $500 million term loan facility that now matures in August of 2022. It's important to note that Interpipeline has no remaining debt maturities in 2021 and remains well positioned to fund its capital program, including HVC, on the standalone basis. As at March 31st, 21, we had over $2 billion of undrawn committed credit capacity and had a net debt to total capitalization ratio of 42.6%, which is significantly below our maximum bank covenant level of 65%. I'm also pleased that S&P upgraded Interpipeline's outlook to stable on the back of strong take-or-pay contracting levels from HBC and the expected deleveraging that is to occur once the facility ramps up operations. On the risk management front, Interpipeline utilizes derivative financial instruments as part of this active hedging program to manage commodity risk exposures, reduce volatility, and stabilize commodity-based EBITDA. For the second quarter of 2021, Interpipeline has hedged crude oil, NGL, and natural gas, representing approximately 30% of our total volume exposure and 25% for the balance of the year. Now I'd like to turn things back to Chris for some final remarks. Thanks, Jeremy. So finally, an update on the strategic review process. So the special committee, consistent with its fiduciary duties and acting in the best interests of the company and all of its shareholders, is evaluating a broad range of options, including the process to secure a partner to produce a material interest in the Heartland Complex. We expect to provide an update on the entire strategic review in advance of Brookfield's hostile bid expiry in early June. As we have previously indicated, the Board of Interpipeline believes that the hostile bid, bid significantly undervalues our business, is opportunistic, and is not in the best interest of our shareholders. To reject the hostile bid, shareholders simply need to take no action. We are very excited about Interpipeline's future and the pending startup of HBC, and we continue to remain focused on executing our business plan and maximizing value for all shareholders. As a reminder, Interpipeline will be hosting a virtual tour of the Heartland Complex on May 12, 2021 at 2 p.m. Mountain Time. The tour will highlight construction progress and the operational readiness of the facility. To register, please visit Interpipeline's corporate website at interpipeline.com. Before turning the call over for questions, I wish to acknowledge Richard Shaw's retirement and sincerely thank him for his contributions and many years of service as Interpipeline's Interpipeline's Chair of the Board of Directors. I would also like to acknowledge Ms. Margaret McKenzie, who has been appointed as our new Board Chair. Ms. McKenzie has served on Interpipeline's Board for over five years and brings over 30 years of experience in the energy sector. This concludes the formal portion of the conference call. I would now like to turn the meeting back over to Gabriel to open the floor for questions. Thank you. Thank you. At this time, if you'd like to ask a question, simply press star 1 on your telephone keypad. If you wish to withdraw a question, 
press the pound key. Your first question will come from Patrick Kenny of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, good morning, guys. Um, just maybe on the HPC EBITDA guidance, wondering if you could just walk us um, through how you get, you know, towards the longer term, 450 to $500 million range from, I guess, closer to 300 out of the gate in 2023, if we ex exclude the, uh, the APIP grant. Sure, Patrick, it's uh, Brent Hagee. I'll take that uh, question, and I'm sure uh, Chris will probably have some comments also. So, yes, in the long term, we continue to expect HPT, HPC to generate, you know, approximately 450 to 500 million of annual average adjusted EBITDA. And so I'll just walk through some of the assumptions as to how we get there. So the first one assumption is that we achieve the minimum contracting objective of 70% of the current complex production capacity under the take or pay contracts and that those are with arm's length third parties. Um, that average is a 10-year average for the complex excluding 2022. Um, when we talk about the uh, North American PP to Edmonton propane spread, that's at about at about uh, 1400 US dollars per ton. Uh, that would be in line with a historical average and that achieves the midpoint of a long-term adjusted EBITDA guidance range. And uh, the next thing is, is there is a de-bottleneck that is planned for 2025. And so that de-bottleneck, we expect to unlock available capacity uh, in the complex, and it'll give about an additional 10% over the 525 KTA stated capacity. And so in the long-term, you know, we expect that production to exceed 525 KTA. When it comes to operating expenses, so a normalized operating expenses that, you know, approximate the fixed and the variable uh, fees that are charged within the take or pay contracts, um, and they're assumed to be elevated, you know, in the ramp up years, but we expect that those costs will normalize. Okay, thanks for that color, Brent. And, you know, the pandemic obviously had a material impact on the, uh, the capital cost here. It doesn't appear to have had much of an impact on the long-term EBITDA guidance, despite you know some, if not all, of these new safety protocols likely here to stay for a while. So, just maybe if you can walk us through the flow-through nature of some of these new costs that will be incurred on a on an operating basis going forward. Yeah, Pat's Chris. So there there is a component of the cost structure that is directly flow-through. That's um, that's the marketing costs and transportation costs. The remainder of the of the cost structure is essentially the operating fees, both fixed and variable, that we've established are designed to to offset the actual cost. Okay, so no um, absorption of these new pandemic-related costs by shareholders. That's going to be all on the shippers. Well, at the end of the day. When, when this plan is up and running in 2022, we're we're not forecasting. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Sorry, guys, might have lost you there. I'll, uh, I'll jump back in the queue. Your next question will come from Robert Kwan of RBC. Please go ahead. 
Um, good morning. Um, just turning back to the guidance in the 450 to 500 million dollars, um, did at that being a 10-year average, I guess if you look at the 408 million dollar grant, is is the way to think about it then that on a for lack of a better term, amortized basis, about $40 million of that number is the grant and that the underlying actual operational is more like 405, uh, 450 a, a year. Um, I don't think that's how we would do the math, Robert. The, so, you know, the, the way we think about APIP, it literally, it literally does bridge the facility the EBIT of the facility as we ramp up. And just to emphasize some of the points Brent's always already made, um, we have, we have uh, consciously made some what we think quite conservative assumptions in the early years of this plant so that we, we don't overpromise uh, on the, the early years EBITDA guidance here. And the conservatism is really built into three pillars. One is the, the operating profile ramp up, you know, certainly we could do better in terms of the operating availability of the plant over, the, over a two-year period. But we've looked at what other similar facilities have done in the past, and we assumed a conservative uh, ramp-up schedule in that regard. We also have burdened the EBITDA with, with higher operating costs, like Brent mentioned, simply because in the early years of these plants, there can be some unexpected things that you need to do as you're ramping up the plant, and we wanted to make sure we had a conservative view on those costs. We could also um, not incur those costs, so we could over, outperform in that, on that basis. And the, uh, the third thing is the commodity price deck. Clearly, we have no control over what the actual spread is going to be between polypropylene and, pro, and propane. So we took a notch down from the historical average, which we think is, is appropriate in this regard. But if we're wrong, and the the actual spread in 2023, for example, is the 1,400 US dollars per ton. Um, you can add an extra roughly $60 million to our EBITDA guides, for example. So, you know, okay. when we layer this all in together, we think we've got the right bridge up to full operating capability, and we're highly confident in our long-term guidance of 450 to 500, uh, particularly because we continue to use a uh, conservative view on the commodity price deck, that 1,400 historical average. Again, we could easily beat that number if you just add uh, one or two hundred dollars to that average spread over over that period of time. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Um, just sticking with HPC and and the the modest cost increase here, uh, I think when you gave the four billion dollar number uh, about a year ago, that did include contingency. Um, is there still contingency in the four point two billion? Um, like, is it apples to apples from that point of view? And, and has there been any productivity loss that's worked into this um, impacting schedule from your point of view? Well, the way we, I would describe this, the $4.2 billion, what we did was a general refinement of the total project costs here over the, over the last little while. And certainly uh, the continued impact of COVID-19, which includes additional costs to keep our workers safe, has played a role in, in the modest cost increase. And there's also been, I would say, a bit of a productivity impact because of those additional. Well, on the contingency side, um, yes, roughly half or 100 million 
of the $200 million refinement um, is unallocated contingency. And I, in my opinion, that provides a meaningful cushion for, we'll call it, unanticipated events before the plan is completed. Okay, that makes sense. Um, if I can just finish on facilities infrastructure, and I think some of this is just related to the resegmentation, but um, can you talk about how much the volume impact in, in the quarter uh, impacted results? You also mentioned power, um, and if you can just talk about that. And the last is you talked about ACO gas, and I'm just wondering how is ACO gas factoring into the facilities segment? Is it some sort of allocation? In your in your new uh, intercorporate uh, exchange, yeah, Robert, it's uh, Corey Newfield here. Um, about uh, half of that uh, delta uh, of the EBITDA was associated with lower ethane volume at our Empress facility, and uh, your comments about ACO, um, it's related to fuel costs that we uh, incur operating our facilities. Um, so we saw higher ACO costs in Q1 due to the extreme cold weather. So we saw a combination of higher ACO costs and uh, power costs that drove our operating costs higher. That shows up in the facility infrastructure. Just to clarify, Robert, like the shrinkage gas, okay, so the facilities infrastructure segment still has the fee-based ethane contracts in it and their shrinkage gas related to that. The C3 plus uh, shrinkage gas, sorry, shrinkage gas related to C3 plus ultimately ends up being in the marketing segment. Got it. Okay. So about half of the year-over-year delta was volumes on C2 and the other half was, let's just lump it into all the OPEX stuff, including power? Yes, that's correct. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Your next question will come from Andrew Kuski of Credit Suisse. Please go ahead. Thanks. Good morning. I, I, I guess the question really revolves around your hedging program and how have things evolved just from the philosophy of hedging and then the actual hedging uh, with the, the resegmentation of, of the business? How are you approaching things a bit differently or is it consistent with the past? And then how do you see this evolving with HP, HPC on the fold and on an operational basis in the future? Sure, I'll take that question. It's uh, Brent Hagee. So, you know, um, the restructuring of our business segments, uh, you know, obviously one of the primary drivers for it is, is we wanted to get all of our commodity exposure centralized. And so that, that's now happened, obviously, with the creation of the new marketing segment. And so, you know, when we went through this uh, business reorganization, one of the things we wanted to do is to get much more visibility and understanding as to what our commodity exposure is, and then to really start more actively managing it to start reduce to, to start reducing the volatility within that segment. So, you know, in the first quarter, we were very fortunate that we saw some very strong pricing, particularly for uh, polymer grade propylene. Um, I think polymer grade propylene actually hit a record price. Uh, we've seen a lot of volatility since, but certainly we were able to lock in some of that pricing. Uh, the same thing was with uh, propane. Um, so, you know, we, we ended up uh, doing some hedging. And so, you know, we've, we've laid out all of our hedges in our financial statements and that. You know, I think what you will see from us is we're going to be 
uh, continuing with a much more active hedging program. You know, when you layer the hedges in, that always depends on business conditions, you know, at the time. Now, when HPC comes on, yeah, we will have uh, a component uh, where we're going to have some commodity price exposure. And, um, yeah, we will certainly look to hedge some of that exposure at that time, you know, once the facility gets up and running. And, again, it will depend on market conditions, uh, you know, at the time. But, you know, I think my message is, is, you know, we're going to be much more involved in hedging activities with the view of reducing uh, the volatility of commodity pricing in the organization. Appreciate that color. And then I, I guess the second question is an extension of the first in that risk management and the hedging program. I, I think in one of your more recent presentations, you, you outlined the priorities really being balance sheet strength, uh, return capital to shareholders and the growth investments. I guess if we focus on those first two, just the more active hedging program, uh, that should help on your balance sheet strength. And then, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit about just return capital shareholders and, you know, the path to dividend restoration. If there's sort of a view on that and do all these things triangulate together? Well, they, this is Chris. Uh, they certainly do triangulate together. Um, really want to emphasize the fact that it's of paramount importance to have a very strong balance sheet. Uh, and, and it's not like we have years of, of that's a heavy lift for years to accomplish that. The startup of HPC essentially re-rates the balance sheet almost immediately with, with the large influx of cash flow that we're going to receive beginning in 2022. The, um, when it comes to a return on capital to shareholders, certainly that's top of mind for the board. The, um, we are in, in a, probably a very unique position amongst our peers where we, we do have a sizable growth in cash flow uh, coming up in a quite short period of time and a very low payout ratio currently. So there's a significant room to uh, review the dividend in the not too distant future. And the board, of course, is very, uh, is very aware of that. And finally, um, when it comes to you know, future growth, uh, with a strong balance sheet, um, and a review of the dividend, there's still uh, significant free cash flow in the business to fund addition, to equity self-finance new investments in the business. And I think the, the, the company will take a very practical view on that in the future. Okay. Thank you. Your next question will come from Rob Hope of Scotiabank. Please go ahead. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, just in terms of the strategic review process, as well as the uh, uh, additional contracting information that you provided uh, recently, you know, I just want to get a sense, like, was this always known during the strategic review, or is this new information for uh, a number of the, I guess, the participants? And I guess, you know, secondly, you know, with, you know, with you going out and saying that you have 60% uh, contracted, um, you know, has this spurred further discussions for uh, Optics? Um, so I'm not sure I understood the first part of your question. What what were you asking was new inform possibly new information for people? Yeah, what was the, was the fact that Heartland was 60% contracted always known for the participants in the strategic review, or is that kind of a, a new and incremental piece? Um, not exactly sure how best to answer that question. I think the 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 folks in the strategic review were privy to 
um, the exact information on the status of the project, I guess, at the time would probably be the best way to answer that question. And uh, certainly, we we view the you know the positive news we've we've enjoyed here over the last few months, including government support, the strong contractor profile of HBC is is very positive for the for the strategic review process for obvious reasons. It it materially de-risks the project and and substantiates its value. All right, thank you for that. And just as a follow-up, like now with 60% contracted and we'll call it an incremental 10% open, you know, PEMNAS project had been deferred. Um, you know, ha have conversations to secure additional offtake picked up, or is that still um, a bit of a longer-term process? I'm I'm quite pleased with where we're at today. Like we have active negotiations on with a with a number of counterparties. I think the fact that we are close to the finish line on contracting is certainly spurring people to to uh, re really understand that once we're once we say we're done contracting, we're done, and that opportunity is lost for, for years for folks who uh, um, who otherwise would have wanted capacity. So that's a very helpful dynamic and. Like I said in my prepared remarks, I think I remain confident that we're in a good position to achieve our minimum contracting guidance here before the facility operates if, if some of these active negotiations are concluded. Excellent. Thank you for the color. Your next question will come from Praneeth Patish of Wells Fargo. Please go ahead. Thanks. Um, good afternoon. I, I wanted to ask about the debottlenecking plan at HPC in 2025. Um, I guess, what exactly does this project entail? Um, what would be the cost? And then why wait until 2025? Can you do it sooner? Well, it's, uh, it's Chris. I'll take that question. With, with integrated facilities like this, it is very common that at the, the first scheduled turnaround that there, there are a, a numerous debottleneck investments that are made. And they're, they're generally smaller scale projects. It might be equipment modifications, piping changes, things like that, that can unlock additional capacity in, in a world scale facility. Technology providers and other experts um, with these facilities and look, looked at what had been done at other facilities in the past. And I mean dozens and dozens of, of facilities to see what is a reasonable assumption for for uh, debottlenecking a facility, because until you start up the facility, you can't specifically identify where the bottle, bottlenecks are. You need some operating history to do that, and that's how we land, landed at 10%, which we think is a is a very reasonable and conservative assumption in this regard. Uh, the capital we won't be in a position to disclose capital until we actually identify these these specific projects. But the capex, looking at what other folks have invested, it, it is it is relatively small. Uh, we're we're talking we're not talking a big investment here. Okay, that that makes sense. And then um, you've got most of the contracts you need for HPC at this point, and, and leverage looks like it's going to come down quite a bit when HPC is up and running. So I guess my question is, um, why are you looking to potentially sell an interest in HPC uh, at this point? Is it because you want, to, uh, you want a partner that might bring contracts to the pro project, or do you think you could get a valuation uplift? Just wondering if you could talk through the rationale there. Well, those, you mentioned two good, good reasons, frankly, why, uh, why where a partner could add value. I think it also, I think, helps the market um, value the investment if there's a, a, a third-party partner brought into the project. 
I, it does lower our single project exposure to a degree as well. But, you know, I think I mentioned this many times, as the project gets very close to going in service, the benefit of bringing in a partner becomes less and less. And that's why we've been clear for quite some time that this process, partnering process will terminate one way or the other in the first half of this year. Got it. Thanks. And your next question will come from Robert Kenley of CIBC. Please go ahead. So a couple uh, more questions on the HPC wrap here. Um, I, it looks like you're giving us a 10-year average of uh, 450 to 500, excluding 2022. Uh, do you have a sense of when you might see a first, the first single year in the 450 to 500 range? In other words, what I'm trying to figure out here is it really contingent on the uh, the model mechanism that you just went over, or can you uh, achieve that rate sooner? Yeah, we don't have. We're not in a position here to provide a, a guess as to which year uh, we could actually achieve that that range. Although I would point out, I guess, just building off my earlier remarks, if you just make a relatively small adjustment in the polypropylene to propane spread, um, you can hit that target. Right. So it's not contingent on the deballnecking that. No, there's a there's a lot of variables that go into that long-term guidance, and the deballnec is just one of them. Okay, there's also uh, a timeline or the time horizon to get to four times leverage in the presentation. What uh, What's the reasonable timeline there? Well, obviously depending on business conditions, but you know we're quite confident that shortly after Heartland uh, comes online and starts to ramp up to its full potential, we will be well within that target. Okay, last question for me. You have uh, you disclosed a new fee-based or a agreement uh, for Nova uh, for ethane sales at Cochrane. It starts in 2025. What uh, is the logic for that start date? Is that when the rest of your uh, contracts expire and capacity is available, or what uh, informs that 2025 date? Yeah, it's Corey here. Um, that's correct. That's uh, when our current uh, contracts come off on January 1st, 2025. So all we've done is uh, extend our contract period. Okay, thank you. And we have no further questions at this time. I'll now turn the call back over to Jeremy for closing remarks. Well, great, Dan. Thank you, and apologize. I know we had a couple of cutouts uh, during the calls. So we're going to look into that, but if there's any uh, any further follow-up, please please call the Investor Relations Department. We'll help uh, go through any any clarity if, if things were missed. But do want to thank you for participating on our call today, and we look forward to discussing our second quarter 2021 results with you on August the 5th. Thank you. And this concludes today's conference call. Thank you for joining. You may now disconnect. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.